0: Hey, thanks for listening with Sanctuary. We're excited to grow in the knowledge of Jesus with you. Now let's get into the Word. Somebody say, Amen. His kingdom comes. I want to talk to you about the expanding kingdom. Uh, I've titled this message, Little is Much. And I'm just going to be honest, I've got a lot of meat to go through today. And I hope to get you out of here on time. But uh, I, I really feel like God wants to say something today. And over the last week and weekend, even up late last night and this morning, God has just been kind of changing and redirecting what I feel He wants to say today. Um, but His expanding kingdom, little as much. Uh, you're not the same as you were before, He said. You are much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. That's what the, uh, the Hatter said to Alice in that 2010 movie. You've lost your muchness. Alice had gone to Wonderland once before and did all these great things. She had that childlike faith and advanced things and was conquering things. But then she grew up. She came back later on in the movie at 19 years old. Uh, it was a proposal she didn't want to have, and she was in the pain of losing her father. And the world had gotten to her, and she had lost that childlike faith. That childlike spirit, that spirit of adventure. And the hatter came and said, You're not the same Alice as you were before. You have lost your muchness. I've always thought about that because that, I think that speaks to the spiritual life as well. You can lose your muchness. There's this sense of kingdom adventure, of taking on the world, of believing God for greater things, that we can do things and move mountains and shake kingdoms, and, and that God wants to do great and mighty things through little bitty people like little old Alice, who nobody thought anything of Alice. She was a she was kind of weird, she was out of sorts, she didn't fit in with the world. And God says He's called you to be a peculiar people, different. And he's looking for people with childlike faith. And amen. Are you with me this morning? But sometimes we can lose the muchness. Sometimes we can lose that spirit of faith and adventure that God can do things. And at times the church is not everything she should be. Number one, we sometimes deem ourselves weak and insignificant. It looks like we're losing in the world today. Just look around. Does it look like we're winning? It often feels like we're losing in the world. Why? I think we've measured ourselves according to man's kingdom. You see, the church doesn't supposed to look like man's kingdom because it's God's kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And we as a church or as a believer to succeed, sometimes we buy into the lie that we need more might and we need more money. We need more power. We need more uh, property. We need things to work out according to man's kingdom. Number two, sometimes I think we've lost our muchness is because we've bought into the lies of the enemy. That what we have isn't enough to succeed in life. We need more for us to have uh, the chance to succeed. The enemy's come. He's sown doubt and discord and division in our lives. Our number three, we have dead places, dead branches, dead parts of our life, of our spiritual life have become dead, and unfruitful places have grown in our hearts and even maybe hidden sin. And that once vibrant spiritual life is now dead and disconnected from Christ. Uh, But Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the, anybody know? The wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You see, there's something powerful hidden in the believer of Jesus Christ. There's something powerful in a Christ follower. And it's the presence of the Almighty God Himself. Somebody say amen. There is something that the world does not see. In the church, it may not seem like much to the world, but there is much muchness in God's meek kingdom. The world values power and wealth and positions of influence, it values physical force, but God values brokenness, and He values meekness, and He values gentleness and peaceableness. You see, our muchness is really rooted in our faith in Christ and our connection to Him. All that we have is Him, and He is the center of all that muchness is coming back to Him and connecting to Him. The Bible says He's the vine, and we are the branches. He is the King, and we are the kingdom. So my question today is, have you lost your muchness? Have you lost your muchness, and is God's expanding victorious kingdom expanding in you? Is God's expanding kingdom expanding in you, and is it expanding God's way. We like to do do things the world's way. We like to do things the natural way. And sometimes we've lost our muchness because we've been building this Christian life the natural way, but not God's way. So look with me in Matthew chapter 13. God's meek kingdom is much. Somebody say much. Much. Oh, that was weak. Somebody say much. much. There it is. God's meek kingdom is much, but you must be meek For it to be much in you. God's meek kingdom is much, but you must be meek for it to be much in you. Matthew thirteen, verse thirty one. Here's what I'm New American Standard. It says this little is much. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this smaller than all the seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than all the garden plants, and he says, It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures or pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Let me give you the background. Jesus is standing there before the crowds in Galilee. He's told them the parable of the sower. He said, There's seed that goes out, and some seed is going on good soil, produces a harvest, but some seed is taken by the ravens, by the vultures, and, and it's gone away. That's the evil one snatches it. And some has gone to the thorns, and some is rocky, and it doesn't do much. And he says, uh, There's also the parable of the wheat and the tares. We'll get into these later. Where a farmer sows good seed, but an enemy comes and sows bad seed right behind him, and they both grow up together. And God's kingdom, he says, is a growing kingdom. But there's an enemy influence as well. The same time the Pharisees are there, and a woman who's been crippled by the devil, by the devil, by Satan, for 18 years and hunched over, comes on the Sabbath day, and Jesus heals her of demonic oppression. He heals her of Satan's influence. And the Pharisees rebuke him in condemning for it. And so then Jesus gives this parable. I'm going to tell you, this is one of the most difficult couple verses in the New Testament to go into. We're going to try to hit every angle, but I'm going to tell you, there are so many commentaries that all disagree on what this actually means. So let's kind of take it in, give you some meat about it a little bit. But what was Jesus saying? He was saying that the kingdom of God that was present in Israel in the Old Testament was not as it should be. That it had grown to be like all the other nations and it exalted the things that other nations exalted. And the enemy had come in like the Pharisees, like the devil, and bound people, and his, the hypocrites have come in, and the religious elite had come in, and Satan and them were working against God's kingdom. It was building on the wrong things. But God had a different kingdom, and it would come a different way. But that still the enemy would come to try to steal, kill, and destroy. Are you with me today? Somebody say amen. So let's look at this. Number one is the biggest tree. The biggest tree. Now ancient people would have known that the tiniest seed, anybody ever seen a mustard seed before? They're very little. I think we had a picture on the screen a while ago. But they're very little. I I would hope to get some for us. But they're about a millimeter, a little bit more than a millimeter wide. And it takes like hundreds of these to make eight ounces of mustard, by the way. That's how small they are, okay? They would have known this was one of the littlest seeds that farmers planted in rural Galilee. But it grew when it growed, it would, it would grow like we would think sunflowers today, little bitty seed. And then just in a few months, boom, it's like head tall. Some of them are 10 feet, 6 feet tall. That's what mustard would be like. It'd be 6 to 12 feet tall. It grows that much from one little seed just rapidly in one growing season. So they would have known that. And he'd say, that's like our faith. That's like this kingdom. It's going to be meek. It's not going to be mighty. But it's going to grow into something. But they would have recognized that mustard is not a big enough plant to actually have a bird put a nest in. It's not a tree, it's a bush. It's like, it's like a sunflower. It's tall, it's weedy, but no birds. So they may fly on it, but they're not going to build a nest on it. What was he doing? He was quoting Ezekiel chapter 17. So you can turn there if you want. But let me tell you what he was saying. So we've got to go back Old Testament. Let's go back and dig a little bit. There's a prophetic meaning here. In Ezekiel chapter 17... There's a story, and the story is that the king of Israel had been taken away by this great eagle in this great tree called Babylon. There was this great mighty tree that all the world nestled under its branches, and the birds of the air made, made themselves in it, and that tree was Babylon, and this great eagle at the top of it was Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And so that, that tree overcompensated. It took over Israel. It took away their king, Jehoiakim. And he went to exile, and so he put, Nebuchadnezzar put the next king in line, and he put Zedekiah on the throne. Well, Zedekiah said, I'm not going to trust in Babylon, but I know there's another tree, there's another cedar down below me, that's Egypt. So he put his chips into Egypt and began to trust Egypt to break this alliance against Babylon. And God said, buddy, you should have put your hope and trust in the Lord and not another man's kingdom. And for this reason, you too will go to exile. You've trusted not in this tree, but in this tree, but you should have trusted in me. He said, for this reason, they also went to exile. But then Ezekiel gives a prophecy of hope. Look in verse 22, Ezekiel 17, verse 22. God says, I'm going to go to the top of this tree, this tree now being Israel, I'm going to take a sprig of the top of this tree, which is the Davidic line of Israel. So Israel's tree was encompassed by all these other trees. But I'm going to take a tree, a top of that tree, and I'm going to plant that little stem, that little shoot, that little root. I'm going to take it over here and I'm going to take it to the Mount of Israel, to the holy city, to Jerusalem, the city of David. I'm going to plant that shoot. That little root there, and that tree is gonna grow. And it's not gonna be like all the other kingdoms of the world, but it will be the most mightiest tree the world has ever seen. It will grow above all other trees, and the world will come, and nations will shade underneath it, and the birds of the air will be in its branches. And this tree, Ezekiel prophesies, is going to be the kingdom of the Davidic Messiah. Somebody say, Amen. amen. So that's what he's quoting. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying there? about this tall tree. He's like, it's a mustard, but he's like, but it's actually, it began as mustard, this little seed, but it's going to take on the world. And it's going to take over every nation. And it began as small, but it will be much. Somebody say, little Little. is much. All right. He's saying God's kingdom's not going to come man's way. This king is going to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, and no one's going to take notice of him, Isaiah 53 said. He would be the prophesied shoot, the root of Jesse. He would be raised by a poor couple and scorn Nazareth. His royal cabinet would be fishermen, rebels, and tax collectors. Come on, somebody. His friends would be prostitutes and sinners. His method of conquering the world would be preaching to poor, pitiful masses. He would come not on a royal steed, but on a donkey, lowly into the city as prince of peace and he would die a cursed death between two criminals despised and rejected that's the mustard that's the seed but this tender shoot, the prophets declare, would become a ruler of the king of kingdom of David. He would arise from the grave. He would conquer sin and death. He would give the poor in spirit and the humble and lowly the power of the whole mighty Spirit of God. They would be a branch of this vine. They would spread across the world, that the whole world might taste and see that the Lord is good. Come on, somebody. Amen. Amen. That's you, and that's me. You and I are a part of an unshakable kingdom, of an unstoppable gospel. And this kingdom has no end. This king and this kingdom is Jesus. He says the smallest people will become the mightiest nation because God is with them. So my question is, again, have we lost our muchness? The grit... You know, the, the fire, the passion that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. You know, you look across the world and it seems like we're losing. The world today, the church today, has become preoccupied with the world's pleasures, overcome with its pain, talking consistently about its problems. And where's the vibrant spirit of faith? All we see are impossibilities, rationalities, and we've believed the lie that we're powerless. We need more money, Pastor. We need more buildings, pastor. We need more programs, pastor. We need more preachers. We need more things. We need more stuff to win. You know, the church has not failed in 2,000 years. It survived Rome's Caesar's. Corrupt popes, false doctrines, and dictators. It survived wars, rebellions, and plagues. It's gone into deserts and jungles. It's begun beyond the iron curtains of communism. It's converted Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, and despite politician and president, this kingdom still has no end. This is the unshakable kingdom. You know, Paul prayed for his Ephesian church when he thought they were having trouble within their own self. They had false teachers coming in, and he was worried that his most favorite church, wasn't going to survive his death, actually. He said this to them. I pray in Ephesians 1.18. I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You would know. Verse 19, he says, What is the surpassing greatness of his power? Somebody say power towards us who believe. I pray you'd get how much power God has in the church. This is atomic, nuclear power by the Holy Spirit that has conquered kingdoms. And while the world is looking to build its kingdoms through power and might and mammon and wealth, that God's kingdom is coming through meek, childlike people who have a spirit of faith like Alice, who can do great and mighty things if they just believe who's with them. So are you believing the kingdom? How much faith do you have in the kingdom? What faith are you praying for God to do something in your family? What faith are you praying with for God to do something in this church? And what faith are you praying with for God to do something in this community? Something bigger than we could ever think or imagine. That's God's dreams. The kingdom. We said he's the tree. Number two is you're the branches. The branches. The branches. So this king, this tree, is going to branch out. He says there would be a root from the rod of Jesse. There would be this this death that is planted on the mountain. That's Jesus. And from that would branch out. This kingdom would branch out. Everywhere in the Old Testament, branches are always people. And Jesus does the same thing in a very popular passage called John 15. Remember what he said? I am the vine, and you are the vine. Ah, look at that. Old Testament theology right there in the New. I'm the tree. I'm the one, the king, the kingdom. It's coming through me. But you are going to branch out from me to the world. And you can never produce fruit unless you what? Abide in me. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. You have to abide in in the vine. There's an old hymn in 1924. I remember singing it when I was little. I said, little is much when God is in it. Anybody remember that? Little is much when God is in it. It's talking about uh, labor not in the vanity of thinking that you need all this stuff. Because even if you go to small places and do small things, little is much if God is in it. God loves weak things. God loves meek things. God loves to shame the world. With, with what they think is wisdom, but it's foolishness to God. He loves to do that. And Christ says, this root, this vine is the kingdom to grow, and you are the branches to produce fruit for the whole world. And this kingdom is to branch out through you and invite the nations to taste and see. But you must be connected. You must be constantly connected to His character. You must be constantly connected to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the character of Christ, which is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine of them. Those nine fruits are coming by constant connection to you remaining or abiding in or resting in Christ. And if you will do this, God will branch His kingdom out and the nations will come and dwell under its shade. But there's a problem. We've lost our muchness. Little is much. There was a moment go on in Matthew, the unable to cast out a demon. Matthew 17, verse 20. These followers of Christ, his royal cabinet, right, of tax collectors and sinners and, and fishermen, so we can't cast this demon out. What did he say? You remember, what did he say? He said, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a what? Mustard seed. There it is again. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved from here to there. You can say to this mountain, go and be cast in the sea. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moving, and nothing will be impossible. How much will be impossible? nothing will be impossible to you. He says, but this kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. It doesn't go out unless you're connected. It doesn't go out unless you're getting strength from me. It doesn't go out unless your faith is rooted in me. I'm the mustard seed. I'm the king. I'm the one planted. I'm the one that has to branch out and it's your connection to me that moves mountains. Little things, little faith, there will be little movement. If there's little faith, little movement... Little faith, little movement. Big faith, big movement. He says, but just the size of mustard. Just plant your faith in me. He says, you've got to pray. You've got to fast. You've got to rest in my work. I'm the tree that you have to abide in. It's not your work and your faith. It's faith in me, and it's faith in my work. He says, this is why you don't see little being much. This is why little faith like mustard seeds can't cast out demons. Because it's not based in me. You're thinking you can do it. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, meek things move mountains in God's kingdom. How does it come? By prayer, by fasting, by resting, and by working through Christ. You know, meekness is much... I want to tell you a few little stories, just real quick. You know, Hebrews tells us of the little people that did great things for God. Look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33... Hebrews 11 verse 33 it says these little little people who the world thought nothing man they thought they were nothing He says, but by faith they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the powers of fire. They escaped the judgment of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Come on, somebody. In meekness, in their weakness of the flesh, they became strong in the presence of God. Man, I don't think we care. Can I be honest? I don't think we care. I think it's great. I don't want to do that. I just want my life to go home, have a good husband, have a good wife, have good kids, have a good retirement, have some good TV, take some good vacations, have a good life and die and go to heaven. That's not what Christianity is all about. I'm sorry. You've been sold a bag of lies. That's not what we're here for. We're here to be planted in Christ... And before he comes, establish his kingdom on the earth. In my life, and Heath Harris is dead. He died a long time ago. And my life, Paul says, is now crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live not on my own willpower works, not on my own wealth, not on my own will, but on faith. I live this life on faith in him who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are here to do some impossible things. This church is here to do some impossible things. We're not here to have a pastor in a pulpit or buildings or programs. We're not here to have the greatest church in Gina. I'm going to be honest. We're here to establish God's kingdom before he comes. We're here to feed the nations with fruit that they might see the Lord is good. And it takes meek people and weak people to do it. And the thing about George, uh, sorry, think about Peter. It was a little church that prayed and saw Peter's angelic release from prison. It was a little hymn that shook Paul and Silas's prison doors and converted a little jailer. It was George Whitfield. they said, was a man of frail and weak lungs. He was born a liar and a cheat. But when God filled George, it was said that his sermons out of those weak lungs could be heard one mile away when God began to preach through George. No amphitheater, no microphone, but in weak lungs, he would preach, and they would hear him a mile away, so much so as he preached, the awe of repentance in God would come across a whole city. The whole city would empty out bars and saloons and dance halls, and they said that for miles, you could see the, horses, the dust coming from the horses and the buggies to go get to one of these revivals. He would preach to 20,000 people at one time in early America. Man, could God do that again? I think about John Wesley, a friend of George's. After John's ministry failed, he discovered finally the joy of God's kingdom in 1738. He realized it was salvation in Christ alone. It was just resting in Christ alone. And after he was baptized in power, wherever John Wesley preached, many would fall to the ground, not able to stand up by the power of God. Some would begin shouting spontaneously with joy. Others would fall onto the floor, wailing in repentance until they broke through in salvation. He would preach such conviction that people would cry aloud, and like Whitfield, 20,000 people at times would gather. That's how the Methodist Church was born, by the way. There's another guy by the name of Lorenzo Dow in 1796, Connecticut. He was a small, unimpressive man. He had hardly no clothes or money to himself, very unkempt. They They say he didn't even own a comb. That's how poor he was. He was illiterate, very eccentric. He was turned away from the ministry. But when God put a fire in this young man in Connecticut... He began to preach in one place and people cried out for 11 hours without interruption until they were completely sanctified. He would preach in places and camp meetings and people would tremble and jerk under conviction. Some would be so prideful and try to avoid it but it would jump on them too. Some people would leave fleeing the, the presence of God in the place but would be hit by the presence of God before they could get out the door. That happened in America by the way. Thousands would convert. He would become the most, uh, the preacher who preached to more people than any in his own era in 1798. Six. I think about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody grew up beyond poor, beyond poor, and beyond poor. They would actually carry his shoes in his hands to church just because he didn't want to wear them out, because that's the only pair of church shoes he had. Couldn't read, couldn't write, went to be an apprentice, and his uh, apprentice person, his mentor, led him to the Lord. God filled D.L. Moody with such a zeal in 1854 that he couldn't stop reaching the street children and bringing them to Sunday school. D.L. Moody alone, by his zeal in Chicago, during the fire, during the Civil War era. I mean, this is, he would see his Sunday school class get to 1,500 children. 1,500. By the zeal of God, he wouldn't rest. He would go out and find street children, orphans, destitute children who didn't have a parent. And he would bring them in and get them in. And he would go on to there and partnering with the YMCA and planning more Sunday schools and more Sunday schools, even reaching more. He'd become one of the greatest evangelists. He was an illiterate man, an uneducated man. He'd have to study hard because he didn't even know the Bible. He just knew he had to get people saved. Meek people meek people I don't have time to tell you about the illiterate middle-aged plumber Smith Wigglesworth who when he was baptized by the Holy Spirit in 1907 became one of the greatest Pentecostals to ever walk the earth to this day he preached and thousands were healed miracles, salvations, even people raised from the dead, in one town I read about that after the crusade had come through the entire town was filled with strong wheelchairs down the streets because a meek man surrendered to God by faith and believed that God has an unshakable kingdom that's not built the way the rest of the world is built. We don't need money and programs. We don't need buildings. We don't need all the polished stuff. We just need the power of God in a faith-filled people. Let me give you a warning before I close because that's really not what all this parable is about. There's a reason this won't happen And there's a reason we won't succeed. So let's go back to what Jesus said. In that parable, in Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, every time one of these great nations exalted themselves, this tree, every time their tree reached to the heavens, like the Tower of Babylon, they thought themselves as God. And God in his time would come and cut down the tree. And in what it says in multiple places, we don't have time to go in there today, but I can tell you Isaiah 18, verse 5, that birds of the air... Would come and dwell on its fallen branches and devour its people, over and over. In the kingdom of Ethiopia, when God presents its judgment, in Isaiah eighteen, he would cut the dead. He would find dead branches in the and he would cut them off. These branches that exalted themselves, that had become dead, he'd cut them off. And the birds and the beasts of the field, prophetically, would devour them. They'd rest on them. What does that mean today? In this parable, why did Jesus say there would be birds in his mustard tree? You know, vultures is really the key word here. It's not like swallows. We're talking about birds of prey. The, the word here is for uh, falcons and eagles and ravens and vultures. And the vultures rest on dead things. They rest on dead branches. They rest in dead places and they love dead things... And the Bible says that Satan is the prince in the power of the air. And he's at work in sons of disobedience. And just like Jesus saw an infiltration of wheat uh, in the tares, he saw that the Satan would be like the birds of the air that would come and take away the gospel seed, Matthew 13. Even note that in uh, Genesis 15... God had a covenant with Abraham and Abraham would lay out two offerings, split them in half and lay them before the Lord. In Genesis 15, Abram was there and it says, and the birds of the air, the vultures, came to rest on Abraham's offering. And Abraham went and he shooed them away. He wanted to present his offering to the Lord, but there was something waiting to take what he was willing to offer God. There was something waiting to pounce for what he wanted to offer the Lord. You know, Satan wants your offering. Oh, he wants your life. He wants your testimony. He wants your witness. He wants your family. He wants this church. He wants this community. Every time you want to offer yourself to the Lord, Satan is right there waiting to pounce. He's a devourer, and everything he looks for is dead things. I think even today you could say that Satan is looking uh, to make a nest upon dead branches in the church. You know, it was even Peter. Remember Peter? Before he had the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus say to him in rebuke? He said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit yet. He was influenced. He was a part of the church. He was in God's counsel. But he was speaking things of man, building the kingdom man's way, not building the kingdom God's way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's not how we're going to do this. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm the mustard seed that's planted in this soil. And we're going to do these things God's way. You're a tumbling block to me. Get back. We're not building this through might and power. God's kingdom is going to be built God's way. Satan looks for dead places to rest on. Remember when your mom and dad said, you got a bird's nest in your hair? Some of us, maybe spiritually speaking. We need to look around and say, God, is there anything dead on the inside of me? Anything dead in my life? The enemy is looking to devour a church that wants to do great things for God. And this is when men try to build the church man's way. With budgets and buildings and pastors and programs, it's when, they think, when Christians in their own life think they can do their life by their own works and their own will. It's unfruitful, Christians, Jesus said in John 15. Remember, he says, if you don't abide in me, it's thrown away as a branch that dries up, and they'll be gathered and cast into the fire. And when those branches are cut away, those things, those people who died and are apart from Christ are cut away, it's giving over to the devil, going into the pit of hell and Satan's kingdom, where Satan is going to have his devouring way with you. Let me be honest. That's what he's saying. He's saying my kingdom's going to grow supernatural ways, it's going to be like a mustard tree that becomes the greatest tree in the whole world. But there is an enemy, and he's looking for a dead place to rest his branch on, put himself on. And he's looking for any time there's something dead and it's cut away from me, he'll come and he's ready to devour it at any moment. Second thing, and it says, but it's going to be like a piece of bread with leaven. The Bible says that Jesus is the bread of heaven. And just like the enemy in the wheat that makes bread, that enemy had sown tares into God's kingdom. He sowed tares into Israel. I think in the New Testament you could say he sown tares. Paul says, get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the leaven among you. He said there's people who are in the Corinthian church. You guys are sinning. There's, you're, you're, you're not eating together. There's people sinning blatantly. There's people uh, fighting for division. I follow Apollos and Peter. There's all kinds of stuff happening in this church. He says get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the leaven is always a bad thing in Scripture. Leaven affects things. He's saying this mustard seed, it's going to grow miraculously. But guess what? Sin grows too. And hidden things will come to pass uh, the Bible says, beware unless you give the devil a foothold in you. That Beware, your sin will find you out and it will be affecting you in some way. There's going to be things. Sin in a church affects a church, sin in a person. And a man or a woman, a mom or dad, it's going to affect your whole family. It's going to come. It's going to, some, something's going to happen. And one way we want kingdom growth to be measured and see it. We, want, we should see faith grow. But the same way sin grows. And its effect may not happen right now. But as the pressure goes on, guess what? That bread, it's going to rise. I'm going to close with this. And this goes back to Genesis as well. So I told you Abraham had a sacrifice that the buzzards wanted. And Abraham had to shoo him away. Maybe we need to shoo away some birds in our hair, some dead places. Devil, get away from me. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Get behind me, Satan. I'm advancing God's kingdom in my family, my marriage, my church, my community. We're believing for greater things. Come on, somebody. Amen the same true as maybe it's not just the enemy, maybe it's hidden things, secret things, thoughts, unfruitful things. Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is sin, it's false teaching, it's hypocrisy, it's lukewarmness, it's lies, it's unforgiveness, it's anything that doesn't belong in an offering. And Abraham one day is there with his wife Sarah and God and two angels show up out of nowhere. Remember this story? It's in Genesis chapter 18 verse 6. And he knows it's God in the spirit, not in the natural. He didn't know it's God in the natural, but in the spirit, he recognizes it's God. And he turns to Sarah, he says, Sarah, quick, prepare three measures of flour. Three measures. That's the only place in scripture it's mentioned, and Jesus mentions it again here. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a person who had three measures of flour, but someone hid some leaven in it. When Abraham offered it to God, it was three measures, and he said, hurry, 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 he's here. What Abraham offered was not leaven. She didn't have time for that to rise. She offered it, they offered it to the Lord as a communal offering, a peace offering, a fellowship offering, and Abraham and Sarah sat with God and his angels, and he fellowshiped with the Lord, and he was a friend of God. What are you offering in your friendship to the Lord that's holy and pure and unadulterated? You know, friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. But Jesus says, I don't, I don't just want you to be slaves and servants anymore. I want to call you friends. And my friendship with God is my pure, unadulterated devotion to Him. And it's not coming in my own works or will or my own goodness. I know that, like Paul said, there's nothing good in me that is in my old sinful nature. But what I do offer, I offer that Jesus Christ has become the offering for me. And I need to have Jesus in my life. I need to partake of the bread of life. I need to say, God, I don't have anything to present to you myself, but I can present Jesus. I can present Jesus. My life is hidden in Christ. I don't want sin hidden in my life. I want to present my life as Christ to you. And that's what he's saying. What will you present God when he comes back? He says, I'm looking to find faith on the earth not faith in your own works and will and your own power to build your kingdom your own way, but someone to come find themselves hidden in me, someone to trust that I'm the bread you need, someone to trust that I build my kingdom my way. I'm looking for meek people, weak people who will become the mightiest nation on the earth. He'll shoo away the birds and rebuke the enemy, who'll put out the leaven and say, let's press on to do great and mighty things for the Lord. Somebody say Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? God's meek kingdom is much. God's meek kingdom is much. But you must be meek for it to be much in you. Have you put on meekness? Are you a living branch? And how much is your faith? How much muchness is your faith in God's kingdom to do things His way? God wants to do things His way. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What are you, This is our prayer before we leave today in our examination and how we're going to apply this message. What are you believing God for in your own family? What are you believing God for in this church? And what are you believing God for in this community? Maybe we've bought into the lie of the enemy. Maybe there's been bad seeds sown. Maybe there's been hidden things in our hearts that God can't use and God won't use. He'll find another place. He'll find another person to use somebody else. And if we could just stand together and say, God, I reject the lies of the enemy. God, all we need is you for my marriage, for my family, for my children for this church, for this community. Jesus, we just find ourselves hidden in you, communing with you. We fast, we pray, we seek God's face. Lord, you are the power we need. Like these men of old, God, unshakable things they did. Meek vessels, weak vessels. God, all you want is us, just as we are, just as I am. God, I surrender.